The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast, would like to acknowledge the support of all of its former guests. And if you listen back to previous episodes and you have enjoyed an episode with a particular person, please do support them. Go and buy their wines, go to their online wine retailing business, go to their restaurants. Um, just find out ways that you can actually get in touch with the guests who have been on the podcast because they do generously donate their time to appear on the show and um, in some way you can help support them. Uh, if you'd like to get involved with the podcast um, through sponsorship or um, partnership, uh, I would love to hear from you. So please do get in contact. You can uh, reach me at thevincast at gmail.com. Um, help the podcast grow. Help it get out to other wine lovers like yourself. But as always, thank you for listening. On this episode of The Vincast, I chat with my guest, Tess Brown, about working as a viticulturalist around Australia and about her recent move to the Beechworth region of Victoria to establish her own vineyard and winery. I also answer the question why I hug cement eggs when I visit wineries, uh, and I also ask another question for this week that I'd love to hear your answers to, so stay tuned. Hello, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and here we are, episode 52 of the Vincast. It is great to have you on board. As always, uh, I would love to hear from you, so do make sure you get in touch. Listen up at the end of the episode to hear about how you can follow me and how you can contact me. So, last week... I uh, ended the episode asking people what was their first uh, interaction with wine that set them on the path of uh, of wine appreciation, wine aficionadoism, if that's a word. Um, and uh, former guest uh, and super fan Jonathan Brook responded on Facebook, uh, talking about when he actually uh, was studying hospitality management at TAFE and uh, he took a wine studies course um, from an knowledge uh, professor or expert who came in and um, he found it so fascinating, um, which is sort of the, the kind of this, the way that I got into wine. I, I actually did it through um, one of my first jobs in wine, which was just in basic wine retail. And um, I there was a, an introductory wine course that was run by Gage Lasseter, who worked at Swinburne University out in Lilydale, and it was it gave me such an interesting introduction and appreciation for the differences of variety and region, that kind of thing, and that really set me on my path. So thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. Um, I also uh, I haven't had any real questions for uh, Ask the Wino yet, but I thought uh, some people have been asking me. Uh, they've been seeing some photos of me on Instagram and and on, through my website of me hugging cement egg fermenters in wineries. Now um, you might be wondering when I started doing that. It was actually uh, visiting a winery in uh, in Chile. Um, it was a, a biodynamic winery and something I started to notice was that uh, I started to see more and more cement egg fermenters in, uh, in wineries that grew their fruit biodynamically and so I, uh, I had a photo taken of me hugging the cement egg and the next time I saw a cement egg in a winery I had a photo of me taking it and it just sort of snowballed from there so 
um, I'm, I'm, if you keep uh, uh, following me on Instagram, you'll notice that uh, every every week or so, I'll, I might uh, put a, post, a, a picture of me hugging a cement egg that I was taking in a winery around the world. My guest for this week's episode of The Vincast is Tess Brown, who has worked for many years uh, as a viticulturalist uh, in a number of different regions all around Australia uh, and also for large and small producers. So she has recently relocated up to Beechworth in Victoria. So she talked about her experiences and what she's hoping to achieve with this new project. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, make sure you get in touch with us, but uh, I will see you on the other side. Tess, thank you for joining me here in uh, in Vincast uh, headquarters uh, for for a, a studio episode. Well, thanks for having me over. Uh, and um, yeah, obviously, thanks for coming down to Melbourne, I guess, um, from from the farm. Um, and uh, yeah, tell me, where did uh, the the love or the interest in wines originally start for you? Um, I'm actually from far north Queensland. I'm the daughter of a couple of cattle and cane farmers, so it doesn't really make sense that I ended up in wine, but... They weren't um, wine drinkers at all? Uh, no, that's where it changes. <laughs> no, Dad Dad is has always been a, a fairly eager wine drinker. Um, there you go. And, yeah, he used to collect wine and, you know, North Queensland being hot and humid, um, we actually stored all of his wine in a cold room where we used to hang sides of beef from from farm kills and things like that because we used to butcher all our own meat so um mum and dad started giving me a little bit of wine to have with meals with them from about 12 years on or onwards so so they introduced uh, you that appreciation of having wine in the context of a meal and, and sharing and that kind of thing yeah absolutely look i mean it's north queensland it's so lowbrow but um definitely wine was a part of the meal um and you know it was the early 90s so it was the beginning of that most recent boom period that sort of period from the start of the 90s until probably you know the turn of the the millennium where there was an explosion in Mm. things to choose from things to buy and quality and different regions and so even even up in far north queensland uh, access to 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 wines was was okay um in the 90s it was a little bit more old school definitely back in those days there were subscription based things like you know westpac's subscription wine dozens or cellar masters or the wine society so yeah dad got you know old school booze from people like that and we'd have a glass of barossa shiraz with with dinner and things like that so i didn't have a, a knowledgeable appreciation as a teenager but i certainly Knew it existed, enjoyed it, and um, my eldest sister um, did uh, teaching, and her first teaching position was in Wagga Wagga um, in New South Wales. And in my last year of high school, we trekked down to see her in her new job um, in Wagga, and Dad was like, come on, let's go and have a day down in Rutherglen and have some ports and muskets. Um, And... Yeah, the very first winery we walked into in Rutherglen was a place called Cofield. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't heard that name in years. I know. It's, it's, Is it still around? Absolutely. And oh, making as probably about the same amount of wine it was making sort of 15 or 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I walked in and breathed deeply and thought, this smells great. This seems interesting. And I think we had to put in our university preferences in the middle of the year so I think we got back from holidays 
got the university forms and I'm like, oh, I'm going to put down viticulture first and enology second and see what happens. Um, and yeah, uh, I got into... Yeah, I got into veterinary science at the University of Queensland, which was a much more prestigious course. But I'm like, no, I'm going to go and learn how to grow grapes. Um, so, yeah, I moved to Wagga when I was 17 at the end of year 12. And well, at least knew someone there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a university town. It's um, It didn't take long to, to settle in. And, yeah, the, the rest is history. I sort of did viticulture full-time for about five years and then went back and did post-grad winemaking in um, jumped across to the dark side and now sort of balance um, both persuasions, I guess. So Rutherglen was the, that was the epiphany moment, was it? Well, it was the first winery I stepped into. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's not and, you know, and, and a sexy or cool wine region, but it was... But at the same time, it's a region so heavily steeped in history, yeah. Australian wine history. Oh, and it was fascinating. It was 1996, you know, uh, I'm probably talking about North Queensland, you know, Dad loved Bobby Burns Shiraz from Campbell's. He got it every year. And um, it was just, it was an eye-opening thing. Mm. So, you know, I have I guess I've been in the industry for, you know, 15 or so years now. And, oh, no, almost 20. Um, time sneaks up, man. It does. You laugh, but it it's does. terrifying. Um, and, you know, things change over time. But I'm still, you know, it's still nice to go back to Cofield. Um, I'm sort of friends with well, Damien. You're certainly a bit closer these yeah, days. it's like 40 minutes away from Beechworth. Everything's so close up there. Mm. Yeah. So what were your experiences? So do you, you just, do you study viticulture or was there also a winemaking component to the course? No, they were separate back in those days. They, right. are, they are offered together now as a sort of muddled together not quite a double degree but um i think to be honest i think that is preferable i think there needs to be a little bit more appreciation for both sides you know it's very easy to work in one or the other but someone who actually appreciates you know a wine from start to finish Mm. is going to be a much better viticulturist if they know where it's going to end up or a better winemaker if they know where it's coming from yeah for sure i i did all i did start viticulture always thinking that i'd go back and do wine science later Mm. i think it's just that they weren't offered as a combined course back then that i had to do one first and another second Mm -hmm. um but coming from a farming background i did want to have an agricultural appreciation mm-hmm. um before i did anything too technical or arty so yeah no it just it was what made sense in my head so but, I did but that. coming from that um agricultural farming background do you think that possibly gave you an appreciation for knowing where it was coming from and, and having a sense of place yeah absolutely i probably didn't appreciate that until relatively recently um it probably wasn't until i'd been working almost exclusively in the cellar for you know three or four years that i really yearned to to do both um and that was probably at the point where i might okay now i have to start to work out a way to bring them back together because unless you're born into a vineyard family or unless you buy a vineyard and make the wine yourself and and are a vineyard which even in the 90s was still a very expensive proposition yeah absolutely um 
it's it's quite difficult to combine the two. It is actually a lot easier to either be a vineyard person or be a winery person. Just mm-hmm. just just the way the industry is set up in Australia, I think. I think it's um, really unfair, particularly the Europeans, to kind of point at Australia and go, "Oh, you guys don't know anything about what it is to be a vineyard." It's like, well, to be fair, most of you have been born into a wine family. Yeah. You haven't had to buy vineyards. You haven't had to buy a cellar or a lot of equipment. So just you know shut up (laughs) oh no look it's easy it's easy to identify differences and use them to leverage yourself into you know a visibly nicer sounding way of being Mm -hmm. but um yeah it's not it's not as easy as it sounds um and we're going through that process now planting vines and making booze and um yeah mate trying to trying to balance the books at the end of the day so Mm. yeah we're about 18 months into the process. So, yeah, this is really – I'm going to look back one day and it'll be so romantic, but um, it's a lot of hard work. Of course. Definitely. Lots of bidding to but, the bank, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, not too many, actually. As long as you pay what they want, they, okay. leave, they leave you alone. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> so, so, in terms of um, – were you working at all whilst you were studying? Um, viticulture – because I would think it's it's not like doing a, a winemaking course where you know obviously the bulk of the wine the, the winemaking happens during the vintage and so I would think possibly students have to be either in the the university winery or going off and kind of working a bit of vintage to kind of get that experience even whilst they're studying. Yeah. It's, whereas it'd be, I would think it'd be pretty different with viticulture because you know oh. that's a, it's much more around. Well, you know. Yeah, there's a few ways to to skin a cat. Back in the 90s at Charles Sturt Uni, they encouraged students to do two years internally of viticulture and then finish the course externally okay. and go out and get a job and, right. and work and, and study by correspondence, which is what I did. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I did two years internally um, and then moved to Orange um, and got a, you know, a baby viticulturist position with a managed investment scheme vineyard up there. Um, and worked for a few years there. Um, and then that sort of fed me into my subsequent jobs. Um, and, you know, I worked all around and then ended up over in Adelaide doing postgrad winemaking in 05. With winemaking, they always made one of your subjects doing a vintage. So if they encourage you to do vintage in warm areas, so you could start in, you know, January and finish in sort yeah, of February okay. or March before before the semester, before the actually, semester starts, yeah. actually starts but that wasn't really possible with viticulture but it's easy to work in viticulture around university holidays because you oh, know yeah. your October holidays you've got pruning you've yeah. got pruning in winter you've got um wire work or shoot thinning or training mm-hmm. in spring and you've got you know foliage work and, and spraying in summer sure. so you could always find something to do right um yeah so, so leaving university the, the the first sort of step into the industry was working in terms of viticulture. Yeah, up in Orange. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, vineyard. And um, even then, Orange was, would have been pretty new, I would think. Yeah. Um, I remember going to, you know, the local growers meetings and things like that, and they were very cognizant of how new they were. I mean, there were a few mature vineyards back then, but not, not much more than you know, 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Orange would have a great resource of nice mature vines now. Everything would be 25 years old. Mm. Um, but that, back then... Um, Compared to somewhere like Rutherglen, Rutherglen Yeah, example. yeah, with ancestor vines, definitely. Um, 
but that was that was the 90s you know back then there were 25 or 30 students in viticulture and 50 students in in winemaking today there's you know less than a dozen it's it you know follows follows the boom and bust cycle, the twenty five year cycle of the wine industry basically. So mm. um, yeah, lots of vineyards were getting planted back in the day. So sure. people all went out and trained vines and did things like that. So basically, there was a lot of work to be done. You know, at that time, you know, with a lot of investment going into into wine, and, and I can imagine it would have been pretty exciting times. You know, new frontiers as well, new new regions and stuff like that. Did you did you travel much? Did you get to sort of many regions and visit wineries and, and taste stuff? Were you, were you interested in kind of expanding your palate? Um, definitely, I I tried to. It was more difficult for vineyard kids to expand their palates than winery winery kids um it's that's just the nature of the beast people that tend to was end it? up funneled into vineyards don't get to you know they're beer drinkers they're not they're not serious wine drinkers so we they're, there farmer, was a, they're farmers as opposed yeah, to exactly. professionals um yeah i think i think i, know, I think that's so. probably a poor way of putting it no I, yeah i know what you're saying but there was a gang of there was a gang of us from uni who were mates and we all lived within a drive of each other and we used to do our best to make an effort to get together and and, and taste as much as we could as often as we could sure. um and I didn't get to travel much overseas when I was young in vineyards um, just because of the work, but travelled a lot around Australia and yeah, yeah. worked in a few different places. Um, right, okay. So where, but in terms of um, getting over to Adelaide, what, what sort of drew, drew you to, to Adelaide? Well, um, going back to the question you asked about travelling and tasting to expand your palate, um, the way to do that, as a vineyard person was to go with different jobs. So I think I stayed in Orange for two and a half years and then I moved to um, Canberra for two and a half years. And that's where I did my first winery vintage. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, I did a vintage in Strathbogies and then moved across to Adelaide. And it was kind of working in a few different places um, for experience and palate exposure and things like that. Um, but I always, I knew about the postgrad course in Adelaide um, and sort of was getting towards doing that. So did a vintage in the Adelaide Hills in 05 before, um, before going back to uni and doing postgrad. So what was the postgraduate course? Um, it was the best option for rounding out your knowledge. So Adelaide do um, a grad dip in eonology, a postgrad dip in eonology and Masters, and they do it in. Oh, so sort of the same thing when I was when I studied at Adelaide. But yeah, you did one. You did. Um, well, I did wine business. Wine business, but it was yeah. exactly the same structure. Grad, yeah. grad actually, well, it was a grad cert, grad dip, and then masters. Something like that. So, what was your first degree? Uh, just a bachelor of arts. Mm. So okay. you know, and, and that was the thing, like to 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 be eligible for the masters program, you had to either you know already have a, a bachelor's degree in uh, i guess in either business or in some form of wine or you had to have a bachelor's degree plus at least two years experience in the industry and, and i had that yeah um when were you there i graduated in 2011 ah oh, you a bit after me but um but yeah. I was also external. I, I wasn't. Oh, really? I wasn't based there. Yeah. So it took me three and a half years to I do it. I thought you had to do it internally, but maybe. No. Oh, wine business is probably different. Different to. Um, yeah, I mean, I had residential school and stuff like that, but mm. but that was only for viticulture and oenology subjects. 
Okay, so or, you were living here and just going across to Adelaide. Yeah, I was for living and working. I was I was studying part time. Yep, amazing, fun times over there. Yeah, I, I'd like. Yeah, I, I do do feel like I possibly missed out. You know, because you know I hadn't been to Adelaide before, um, and and I thought it got such a bad reputation. Um, bad reputation, as in being a bit dead, or just well, being no, a big just, country town. No, just or? just Melburnians hate it. They always say, "Oh, Adelaide's a, such a shithole." And so it's not well. They don't. I don't think they said as much anymore. Okay, I'm I don't know if it's just a football rivalry or something like that. But mm, but they always kind of well, you know, Adelaide's full of bogans and stuff like that. But to be honest, a lot of Melbourneans say that about everywhere. Okay, yeah, I'm not a naturalised Melbourneian. So <laughs> at the time I moved to Adelaide, it was the biggest city I'd ever lived in, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get right up in this, and it's going to be great. And mm. I had a really fun couple of years oh, over Adelaide. there. I think it's great. Yeah, worked in some good restaurants to pay the bills and it was fun. Oh, you had a bit of hospital experience? Oh, yeah, I've done, like I did casual hospitality for seven years, I reckon. I think started okay. out in the Ag Tavern at, at um, Charles Sturt University. And, there you go. Um, yeah, the last place I worked was at a little bistro called Rigoni's in Lee Street in Adelaide. I know Rigoni's. Yeah, you've probably eaten there. Um, so, yeah, Rigoni's alumni, there's a few of us in Melbourne. Um, and that was, yeah, just before I finished postgrad and... Um, did you working in hospitality? Yeah. Did, was that another opportunity to try more Expand stuff? Expand your palate, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I always, always did it. Even when I was working in vineyards, I'd do a shift or something, or two shifts or something on weekends and things, just to just, just, but did just you also, to minimise closing the doors. Like you want to keep doors open for tasting and things. But also, again, um, it would have given you the opportunity to actually connect with the consumers. So again, from start to absolute finish, and 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 selling selling the wines and talking about the wines to the, the consumers who are eventually going to drink the wines. That even as a viticulturist, you're growing the grapes for wine that is going to be on someone's table at some point. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, but it did make sense. Mainly I just, um, I'm not, re- I've never really been good at being too compartmentalised. Sure. I mean, this life that Jeremy and I have had for the last 18 months, it's the most specific and focused life I've, I've ever had. I've, sure. Um, and it's, I mean, Beechworth's not remote, but it's, you know, it's not, not in metropolitan areas. So, um, I've, I think I've always tried to do a few different things just to, yeah, just not, just to not get too narrow minded, I guess. Um, but I'd never really thought about it carefully before. <laughs> where, from the sounds of where you've sort of done quite a bit of vintage work or viticultural work, you are sort of leaning more towards the cooler climate regions. You know, Orange is relatively cool climate, Canberra District, Adelaide Hills, Strathbogie. Yeah. Um, do you feel that you kind of connected more with the cooler climate regions? Um, I would say I did, but I don't think it was through logical thought processes. It wasn't, it wasn't something conscious. No, it was, that's Cause I just find it interesting considering you come, you come from far North Queensland. Yeah. You know, to, to sort of go, I'm going to go the other extreme and yeah. go to the cooler climate for, for viticulture. Yeah. I guess I said goodbye to it. I think it's really just where all the investment was. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, when you don't come from a, when you don't have a family business to, to go back to or anything like that, um, and you have to get your own jobs and go places. Um, sure. you know, orange had, vineyard expansion strathbogies had vineyard expansion adelaide hills had it mm, um canberra mm. had it 
because at the time, obviously, the then BRL Hardy did um, did its um, Canberra Vineyard and Winery. Obviously, that's now kaput. Um, but amongst us, others, pardon? Amongst others, amongst others, absolutely. But you know, in that last boom, a lot of a lot of growth was in moderate to cooler climates. I wouldn't call Strathbogies cool or. I mean, I wouldn't call Adelaide Hills truly cool except up around Ashton and, and Basket Range, but um, those moderate climate areas, they, they had a lot of growth back in the back in the late 90s and that's just where the jobs were. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I have ended up funnelled into a moderate to cooler realm, I guess, and where our vineyard is up in Beechworth is up at 800 metres, so it is, I would class, it's definitely the coolest part of Beechworth, but... Um, I'd class it as cool, definitely. Not mm-hmm. Tassie cool, but um, we'll harvest our fruit at the end of March and into April. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say that. still pretty late. But, but like I worked in the Yarra Valley, um, <coughs> uh, you know, and to mention, I would start harvesting beginning of February. Sparkle uh, base though. Yeah. Yeah. No, but even so, even so, they're still harvesting. And, and that's not just, I mean, I don't mean that's necessarily from the Yarra Valley, but they're getting fruit from a lot of different parts of victoria yeah um but but even then like the yarra valley's not as cool as people might think oh the yarra valley is incredibly diverse though i mean different 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 areas that and i think that's part of the problem with with a lot of the regions in australia to be perfectly honest like it's so difficult to classify the adelaide hills you know, there's so many different sites. So to sort of say Adelaide Hills Chardonnay is fantastic. It's like, well, some parts of the Adelaide Hills are outstanding for it and some are just okay. Yeah, I think it's really tricky. You could easily, easily classify sub-regions in, in many of our established wine regions like Adelaide Hills or Yarra or... Or where I was in Western Australia last week, the Great Southern. Yeah. It's enormous. Yeah, and... You know, people like Mac Forbes have obviously gone some way to doing that with his map series and his wines and things like that. But mm. it is tricky because Wine Australia, when you look at it as an umbrella, an, an umbrella thing that wants to, it wants to take a simple message to the market to grow recognition and grow familiarity and things like that. And yeah, let's let's be a little bit cynical about that and, and they say that they're operating it. in the interests of the people who are paying the highest amount of levy. Uh, and that's the big and, and that's the big wine companies who I don't know that it's as direct as that. It may be as direct as that in some senses, but I think actually they just want to market a simple message. If you're trying to sell booze to someone in China or someone in London or something like that. Sure. They understand Adelaide Hills, but they don't understand Ashton or Basket Range or whatever. And oh no, I, t- I mean I totally agree with you. And I think the cynicism is in some cases warranted. Um, I mean I, you know, working in, you know, working in Mornington, I definitely got to, got to say, oh, well, that's Turong and that's Red Hill and mm. that's um, Americks and you know the subregions are as easy to note in a glass as as as, as you can imagine, but. To get anything formally recognised on on an industry body basis, quite difficult. People just, Mm-mm. you know, even small um, small producers will tell you it makes it harder to market, not not easier. So I think that's just, I think it's a just a symptom of where the industry's at at the moment. And I have no doubt by the time you know you and I are in rocking chairs that you know regions will have been 
divvied up into subregions and we'll be taking those messages out. It's just everything takes time to get the momentum to get it to happen. One of the things that I've, I've been feeling more often is that I, I feel like the Australian wine industry, um, particularly younger people who work in the wine industry, are a little bit impatient. I don't know. I don't know if actually, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I think we're all, we all seem to be in a hurry and we sort of, oh, we want to make wine now or, oh, we want to plant a vineyard now or, you know, we, we want we want to change people's perceptions. Oh, hurry, 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 hurry. People aren't kind of allowing things and accepting that things do take time and, and to sort of just, just relax and wait and accept things the way they are and not not get so hung up on why they're not the way they want them to be. Yeah, I, I think about those sorts of things a lot and I – I never know if they are more impatient, as you say, because I'm, I'm, I wouldn't class myself as a young person now. I'm probably at the start of my middle, if that makes any sense, because I'm in my sort of late 30s now. Um, and I don't know if they seem impatient or I just didn't notice that I was impatient when I was that age. Um, but things are a lot different now. I mean, managed investment schemes are no longer, and we've got the legacy of whatever hasn't, you know, vine area that hasn't been pulled out um, is mature and yielding and it's a buyer's market for fruit. So the opportunities are manifold for people with an interest in wine who may not have a background that to is, get out and have a crack. That and is I the was, exciting thing. Okay, I was going to say, like, with the people that you interview, um, just because I'm a little bit in the dark, um, most of them I would think would not be from a viticulture winemaking background like me. They'd be people that were doing something different and just succumbed to their passion and went, if I'm not, I'm going to die. If I don't do this, I'm going to have to have a crack. Mm. Is that a fair? No. Or are you, you mostly interviewing folks that do have it's a, a mix. It's a mix. It's a mix. Yeah. You know, I've, um, had, I've had a number of people who, in fact, I would say in terms of winemakers or winemakers, viticulturists, that's that, that side of the business. Most of the people I've interviewed of that nature I've had a similar story in terms of like they haven't come from a wine background, but somehow they got introduced to wine, you know, often from their parents and like that. Like Luke Lambert, Luke Lambert's from, okay. he's from uh, Brisbane and yeah. it was his parents who weren't in any way connected to the wine industry that loved wine and would drive down to Victoria and visit wineries and, and take him along. And that's where he got introduced to wine. And so same sort of thing. He said, I'd like to, you know, go and study winemaking. Okay, so most of the people that you're seeing have gone and yeah. done and tertiary and study and things like yep. that. Yep, and they've, okay. and they've had experiences working for, in some cases, larger wine businesses, you know, or in some cases, smaller, and eventually have kind of found mm. a way to sort of start their own business and whether they are still buying fruit or whether they have managed to um, plant purchase vines, yeah, yeah. plant or purchase a, a vineyard. That I guess that's the interesting thing is that there's so much going on there's so many mm. different ways of i guess making wine now um it's a lot more flexible i've found yeah um and, and so it is a really exciting time for sure and there's the, there's a heck of a lot of diversity perhaps i just notice the people who don't come from the uh, who are making wine who don't have a tertiary background because they they have they tend to market themselves really well and um, yeah. you see a lot of them and it's yeah. i've i don't have a particular 
opinion about it. I, I sort of notice it because, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was managed investment schemes and big infrastructure yeah. developments. And yeah. today it's... That's the thing. The big wine <clears throat> businesses were expanding. Yeah. And that's where the investment was coming from. And, and now they're contracting. Yeah. And, and so, that, so that's opening up opportunities for individuals, I guess, or, yeah. you know, small groups of people to ha- have the opportunity because fruit is probably a little bit more accessible, both in terms of availability and also price. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't, I don't know if I have a positive or negative opinion about it at all. It's just, it's, it's how things go, you know, um, if it, it wouldn't be like it is today, if there wasn't the expansion in the nineties. And, sure. um, I think it's probably, uh, with the, the cultural movements, um, towards natural wine and orange wine and quirky stuff and, you know, less and alternative stuff. varieties it's, and alternative varieties. It's, it's vastly more democratic. So, you know, there's, if you dig into it, there's pros and cons and everything, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a interesting and very democratic time in the industry. I'd say, I think probably one of the most consistent themes um, of, of former guests of the podcast has been that um, they've experienced a lot whilst traveling overseas. So whether or not they went specifically for the opportunity to work vintage, for example, over in Europe, or whether they were just traveling and kind of went, oh, that's some work I can do. Yeah. That was something that, that most of the, the winemaking guests I've had uh, have had that experience. Did you have that experience? Um. Probably not to the same extent that many of your other guests have had. I've only done two overseas vintages and one of them was in New Zealand. So in 03, I did a vintage in Rioja, which, you know, 03, as you might remember, was it challenging vintage? I think it's probably the best way to say. Um, Generous. Yeah. Um, it was, I learned heaps and heaps and heaps, but, um, you know, that was a six week period. 12 years ago um and new zealand's winemaking is probably not terrifically dissimilar to here so i still have quite a bit of international vintage to expend still Mm -hmm. and i think when our business is at a stable point where we can you know be the bosses of our time and things like that and when we're not slaves to buying posts and planting vines i'll definitely try and do a few more vintages overseas because that's an area where I'm a little bit short um, and hope to, yeah, hope to flesh it out a bit. My partner's going to do vintage in Germany this year. He's never done, he's an architect. He's never done vintage before, but he's got um, uh, an Austrian background. So he's going to go over and do vintage in Germany. Why not Austria? Um, <laughs> we're planting. Germany's a bit easy to be honest. Um, as far as Australians. Yeah. I, I don't know why he didn't pick Austria, but um uh, why not? Why not Germany? He's got a place. He's got a good place to go to, and you know, he practices German <laughs> um, and uses EU passport, so that should be fun for him. And we're planting Riesling this spring, so he's going to come back and boss me around, which will be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but what about you? Where, where would be the? <clears throat> what about you? Where would be the dream region for you to go and work vintage? Um, the mo- well, rel- relevant regions. For me to work in because of what we're planting on our site um i'd like to do a german vintage i need to do um a, a barolo vintage and need to do a need to do a burgundian vintage if i can at some stage um i'm so. sure i'm sure um your good friend sally 
shared all of her experiences working with Kiara last year and made you very, very jealous. Oh, yeah, she... Those, yeah, those guys lived pretty large for a few weeks over there. It sounded like an amazing experience. Um, and I've got a few friends there, so hopefully I'll get to go there in the next few years. What, what was the path that kind of took you down eventually wanting to establish something and, and do something for yourself? Um, probably pragmatism. Um, it is difficult to combine viticulture and winemaking in an employed position. Sure. Um, and as a it's difficult to hang on to a good position as a woman if you want to have a family i'm not saying anything terrifically controversial um i think yeah we'll leave that to our illustrious prime minister (laughs) yeah i i think i sat down a few years ago and really thought hard about all the women i knew who were employed winemakers who had families Mm mm-hmm and um, I could only come up with a couple of names. Mm. The lovely lady at Tarawara and um, Jerry McFall at Willow Creek. Um, there's plenty of women with families in wine businesses, but they're usually family businesses. So I thought, oh, if I'm going to hang on to what I'm passionate about, I'm probably going to have to do it myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't actually do it myself um, because I don't have tons of savings or anything. Um, and that's where I was really fortunate that, my partner was happy to do the business with me. I mean, he doesn't have tons of savings either, but together we can sort of muster something up and make it, make it work hopefully. So that, that pragmatism, I guess, is what drove us to, you know, look for land, buy a farm, price it, plant vines and start making wine. So uh, what led you to Beechworth? Um, When we were looking at land, we wanted somewhere cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Beechworth is probably moderate um and some sites are a bit warmer but um we like the area um i wanted to go to a gi that was small um one of the things i really appreciated about mornington peninsula is that it's a small gi they've got a really clear message pinot 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 chardonnay pinot 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 um and i think it's easier to easier to situate yourself in a market when you have a fairly cogent message mm. um, and Beechworth has a, a pretty cogent message with Shiraz and Chardonnay as well and it's a small wine region um, and my partner being part Austrian is a mad skier um, and it's only two hours to the summit of Hotham from where we live yeah, so well, I, I generally will make a bit of a stop <coughs> in Beechworth on the way up to the snow each you year. ski too or are you bored I no well I, I, got, I went back into skiing um, last winter I think yeah, we're, we're skiers, so... Um, yeah, and we... I, I love Beechworth, and it's close to where I started my career, really. Yeah, yeah. So there was definitely some nostalgia there. That's a beautiful part of the world, and there's some nice people up there, so... But I also... I, one of the things that I find so interesting about Beechworth is this is still a lot of experimentation. That you, you do find stuff like alternative varieties, um, you know, well, it's it's not been a more recent thing. Like, Giacondas had Nebbiolo for years. Yeah. You know, so so it's not sort of stuck in this is what we do here kind of town is there's still lots of different opportunities i guess viticulturally you know in particular yeah yeah and there are a few of us um i think i'm yeah there's a couple of us planting vines um but a few younger people starting labels up there as well i mean obviously adrian Hmm. led the way for 
the the new guard and, sure. and, and and Mark Walpole as well with Fighting Gully Road. I mean, most of his gloss was, was with Greenstone, but now that that business is sold, he can focus on Fighting Gully Road. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's had Sangiovese in the ground for you know for over a decade up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is experimentation up there, definitely. I think people start from a safety net of Shiraz and Chardonnay because that's uh, tried and tried and tested and proven. Um, and then they do just one thing that's a little bit different, mm-hmm. like Sorenberg with Gamay or mm. Mark Walpole with Sangiovese, um, A-Rod with Tempranillo, um, and, yeah, Giaconda with Nebbiolo. Um, Pete Graham's got ne- – well, Pete, Pete Graham's obviously Rick's nephew. He's got the Nebbiolo that Rick was getting. Rick's mm. planted a separate vineyard, which mm. is now yielding. So, mm. yeah, and we're planting Nebbiolo as well, so – a bit should of, be interesting. Or a bit of uh, fortified from Pennyweight. Yeah, but they've got a fortified vineyard in Rutherglen. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I do think they have some fortified stuff at their site near Beechworth, but they, they have their vineyard just on the outskirts of Rutherglen as well. And again, that's kind of the interesting thing about Beechworth is, you know, you are right in the middle of some of the coolest vineyard sites in Victoria in that Alpine Valleys kind of area. Yeah, Whitlands, definitely. And then and then you've got like Rutherglen and 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 Glenrowan, which are much warmer and you know great for big reds and, and fortified wines. So mm. so it is kind of an interesting area, I guess climactically. And then in, yep. you know, you've got Beechworth, it's like that lovely big hill. And oh, Beechworth absolutely. town is just so nice. Yeah, no, it's a lovely place and, to be. And you've got one of the best restaurants in Victoria as well. It's pretty it's pretty good and phenomenally reasonably priced. I always think, oh, it's too fancy to go to Providence. And it's like, oh, no, it's actually reasonably affordable for mm. what is effectively just top-notch fine dining. And I think that's um, the idea is, is that they're trying to keep it, you know, approachable for people you know they're, they're so hospitable and, and, mm. and that that kind of comes through i guess on the pricing as well you know they're doing a seasonal restaurant at hotham this winter i did read that <laughs> that is very very exciting i'll definitely be driving my dad and my uh, sister to that yeah we're gonna have to stay overnight somewhere up there um yeah the diversity of northeast victoria is wonderful but it's also tricky as well um because selling wine which ultimately you have to do to have a sustainable business um relies on fairly simple fairly simple messages and we are like we've got a good group of friends in Rutherglen now who still tip their hats to fortifieds they keep Soleras going and things like that and they make fortifieds but what excites them is dry table wines Mm -hmm. and you've got to be quite smart about the way you do it in Rutherglen to sell your product outside of Rutherglen Rutherglen's market's almost completely cellar door driven so it tends to define Everyone makes their fortifiers, but then what they make that's not fortified tends to be driven by the cellar door market. And the couple of friends I've got down there, they obviously service their cellar door market, but what they're passionate about, you know, savoury or more lithe reds, um, you've just got to be a bit smart about it. And, Mm. yeah, King and Alpine Valleys have this incredible diversity from, you know, top-notch sparkling sites at, at Whitfield um, down to, yeah, solid, solid red sites. And, you know, with what Joe Marsh is doing with alternative varieties, um, out of Alpine Valleys, um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful time to be up there. And we're really, really fortunate to have moved there when we have, when there's a few other people doing things as well. We've got a nice peer network. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we don't all make wine the same way, but we respect 
the way each other's doing it and it's good to bounce ideas off people and that's really important i think oh my gosh because you know, there are because there are some regions some <clears throat> regions i've visited recently which are anything but collaborative mm. um, like mornington peninsula is collaborative but i lived there for five years and i i don't have a single friend from there mm. mainly just because everyone lives everyone has a partner who works in town mm. so you live in the suburbs sure, sure. and you don't um, Beachworth isn't exactly socialize. an hour, less than an hour into into the city. Yeah. So once uh, one of the delightful things about moving up there was I had, yeah, we had a gang Much of much more new, sense of community. Yeah, we had a new gang of friends in mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't expect it, and it's been the biggest blessing. So as we speak, I'm actually eyeing off uh, a, bit, a bottle that you have brought along with me, uh, and this is from the 2014 vintage. vintage. Yep, so the name of the wine Brunnen is a vineyard designate. Right. So we we planted vine. So, so, the, so the, the winery name or the business name is? It's Vigneron Schmaltz and Brown. Right. Yeah, because we're, we're vignerons. Um, Why not Brown and Schmaltz? Um, <laughs> pragmatic Reasons. Sure. VS&B is a good website name. VBNS sounds like beer and a BNS ball and... I went to a few of those when I was in my early twenties, and I don't need to be reminded of them. So, VS and if you don't want to be, in, if you don't know what a BNS ball is, go onto YouTube and put in no, BNS ball, and there's a great story oh. that was done by Vice. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really interesting. Interesting or just messy? Interesting. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, um, yeah. and, so, and Brunnen is. A part of the vineyard? No. Okay, so we planted vines last spring. We right. won't get fruit from our right. vineyard. We're calling Thorley. Our property is called Thorley. Okay. Um, which is the maiden name of the soldier settler guy who maiden name of the mum of the soldier settler guy that got the property back in the day. Um, there's this very, very small vineyard across the road from our farm, um, and they hadn't produced a crop for a few years and we didn't pay them much mind when we first moved up there because we thought they'd be sorted out because um, fruit's quite hard to come by in Beechworth. Um, uh, um, but after we'd been there about six months and we got to know the, the guys that owned the little block, um, it turned out that they didn't have a home for their fruit and that they hadn't had a crop for a few years because um, there was a few tricky vintages, like obviously 11 was tricky 12 was tricky, and I think something happened to them in 10. I'm not entirely sure. Um, so, yeah, they didn't have a home for their fruit. I sort of put my viticulture hat on and thought, oh, well, it's a it's a nice – it's a mature vineyard. It's only about an acre and a half. Um, but it had gotten – not run down over four years, but just when you've, when you've not been able to produce a crop, you sort of lose a little bit of enthusiasm. Mm, so, I can imagine. Yeah, um, it really all it needed was, you know, another pair of foliage wires, a little bit more trimming, a little bit of, um, little bit of shoot thinning work, little, little bit of lateral removal on the morning sun side and, um, some crop thinning. So we got in and worked with a guy who's an IT consultant. So vineyards is not his first, first passion. He just sort of planted the vines 20 years ago as a bit of fun um, with cuttings that he got from Michelinis down in Alpine Valley. Um, so look, nice mature vineyard, dry grown, um, cause our part of Beechworth's fairly high rainfall. 
Um, and it just, just you know, just needed a little bit of a little bit of TLC. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got, yeah, we got a little bit of fruit from it in the 14 vintage. And we'll keep working with those guys moving forwards. They're neighbours. They're nice. We like each other. Okay. Um, and it's nice to have, you know, a mature vine resource um, as well. So, yeah, we made Chardonnay and a bit of Pinot in 14, um, as well as a rosé with fruit that we purchased from Mark Walpole at Finding Gully Road. We got mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. ton of Sangiovese from him, mm-hmm. um, and we took a ton of Pinot from that vineyard and put it over to, to rosé. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we've got three wines, and we'll con- we'll continue with that three wines until Thorley's yes. up and producing. And so what have you actually planted on the Thorley Vineyard? <clears throat> at the moment, Shiraz and Chardonnay. Sure. Um, and this spring, Riesling and Nebbiolo. That's exciting. It is. Riesling, finally. Um, and Nebbiolo as well. Riesling's, I mean, Nebbiolo, I guess, to a certain extent, has established a little bit of a, an identity in Beechworth, but Riesling's not a particularly strong variety from that. I mean, not like not that it's not good, but it's just like, you know, I haven't heard that many Rieslings from Beechworth. No, but Riesling. Yeah. How's it's it? self-explanatory. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> hard greatest, gra- greatest grape on earth. Um, well, uh, we have a higher... Re- Riesling, I will, I will say, I think is probably the ultimate terroir translator for me. Mm, ho- hopefully we, yeah, hopefully we provide a reasonable opportunity for it to express itself. Um, our site is quite high and fairly, fairly cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we are taking... Perhaps a little, I don't think we are taking a risk with Nebbiolo. I think we'll be fine. Our site is a warm amphitheater site in a cooler area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I think we'll, protected. I think we'll be fine. Um, uh, but yeah, I would very much like to make um, just dry to potentially indetectably off dry textural Riesling mm-hmm. because it's beautiful wine. Um, and look, yeah, Beechworth may not have, may not have a, a name for Riesling, but 25 years ago, it didn't have a name for Gamay either. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, and now it certainly does internationally as yeah. well. So in terms of, avail- of availability of the wines, uh, do you actually have any wines available for people to buy at the moment? Um, at the moment, we just have our Pinot available. Um, we've just started going around showing a few people that, but um, I thought I'd bring this along tonight because it's been reasonably well received mm-hmm. um, and you haven't tried any of our wines before. So I thought I'd... Um, yeah, bring bring what we thought was the standout from the vintage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. you'll have some 15 vintage wines <clears throat> going to bottle at some point? Yep. We'll bottle 15 rosé in July and 15 Chardonnay and Pinot in um, January of 16. And we've actually made a cheeky little red blend that will sit alongside the rosé. But that's not strictly Beechworth fruit. That's going to be a blend of Beechworth and Alpine Valleys. Um mm. Just uh, there was a lovely grower down. I'm, I'm quite good friends with Joe Marsh, and I I don't know if you're across what she's doing, but she seems to be leading a a single-handed surge in bringing up the reputation of Alpine Valley's wines. She's a she's an absolute powerhouse, um, and she's found all these wonderful growers who sort of just haven't quite been getting the avenues for their fruit that gives the fruit the best opportunity to mm. get 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 in front of the people it should be getting in front of. Mm. So she has a grower, uh, Bob McNamara, in Warali, um, 
and he had uh, he's got a parcel of Shiraz that was going to Grant Burge um, as a, a blender um, to sort of bring a bit of freshness and, and spice to warmer Aspen, blends. Aspen's probably. Pardon? And acidity. Yeah. Um, but with the merger of Grant Burge and Constellation, was that what it was? Okay. I don't read my daily wine news enough. Um, they rationalised the wine volumes and, and stopped taking Bob's mm-hmm. fruit. So we took a few tons of Alpine Valley Shiraz and, um, yeah, we're blending it with a little bit of Sangiovese and maybe a little bit of Pinot. We'll see. Yep. So we will see. Yes. We'll see. We'll all see. fun. All fun again. So, yeah. And in terms of people um, getting in contact or following and finding out when when the new wines will be released, what's what's the best way for them to uh, to get all that information? We're reasonably low-fi at the moment. Um, we have a it's place. Right, we like low-fi. We have a placeholder website which has our phone numbers and email addresses on it. And if people flick us an email, we will write back to them and take care of them and look after them. And so, do, so do we have any presence on the social media? Oh, I've got a an Insta account, but it's it's a personal one. I'm, yeah, I yeah, but I, I follow the Instagram account, and I love I, I loved seeing stuff during vintage about yeah. you know who like p- drawing pictures of of people who are helping in I've in still, the I've cellars keep, on the tanks. I've and... got to keep going with that. I've got about <laughs> ten more people to draw that I haven't drawn yet, and um, I've got to get around to that. Um, and so, and your Instagram account is uh, Tessa L Brown. There you go. Okay. Yeah, but I'm not. Yeah, we're not really social media marketers. I, I sort of take the Rockford approach. Get in touch, and I will. I'll give you my time. And same with Jeremy as well. So. So the website is. Ah, www.vsmb.com.au, and you can get our email. Vs and or ampersand. I I don't think you can use an ampersand on. Yeah, it's vsandb.com.au, and yeah, drop us an email or. Give us a phone call and we will stop what we're doing and talk to you. And if you see a bottle on a wine list, then you must order it. Please do. Yes. But thank you very much for uh, for making some time, Tess. And um, and I hope you have uh, – uh, I'm looking forward to trying this wine and obviously I'm looking forward to some of the 2015s. And obviously once the uh, the vineyard does start to bear some fruit, it's going to end up in some wine. I'm looking forward to trying that too. Yes, hopefully you'll, yeah, you'll definitely see more of us in the coming years. Um, thank you very much for having me to talk to you tonight. My pleasure. And as always, guys, thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. As always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino, and you can follow the podcast on at The Vincast. On Facebook, you can find me uh, under Intrepid Wino, uh, and of course, uh, everything you might want to know about me is on IntrepidWino.com. Every episode of the podcast, lots of different writings and tasting notes uh, and lots of different stories about my experiences. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, um, rate and review, share it as much as possible uh, because I'd love to get more listeners to the podcast. My question for this week is, what was your epiphany wine if you have one? Let me know, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, through the website, email thevincast at gmail.com. Let me know, and I will uh, hopefully read out your responses on the next episode. But until then, bye. Bye.